Warning. Three of the films that we're discussing in today's episode explicitly deal with topics of suicide and self-harm. While our discussion doesn't get into too much detail, you should be aware of that fact if you decide to watch Inception on Body and Soul or Annihilation. If you live in the UK and you're struggling with intrusive thoughts, there is a great organization called Samaritans, a free 24-7 hotline that you can call anytime to speak to a volunteer who is trained to listen. The link to that will be in the description. Now, enjoy the episode. One thing you should know about me. I specialize in a very specific type of security. Subconscious security. You're talking about dreams. Mr. Cobb has a job offer he would like to discuss with you. What kind of work placement? Not exactly. You're listening to Because You Watched with Charlie and Francesco. I'm Charlie. And I'm Francesco. This is a podcast where we talk about a film that enjoyed significant mainstream success and use them as a starting point to discuss lesser-known films that we think deserve greater attention. So in some ways you could think of it as taking a film inside a film. Inside of a film. All right. Uh, Joining us today to discuss Christopher Nolan's Inception is very, very good friend and hopefully a friend of the podcast. Let's see how it goes. Uh, Alex Wilcox. Hello. Nice to be here. Um, uh, When you said very, 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 I really thought, because this is, you know, the the general way that our bits go, is I thought you were going to say very, very, very tall. Uh, Yeah, just for context, Alex is tall and he'd like you all to know that. No, that's the joke. I'm actually really short. And I'm the tall one. The height difference between Alex and I is the same height difference between Margot Robbie and Elizabeth Debicki. Did you look that up? I did because I saw them <laughs> looking very different in height in a picture. Jesus looked Charlie. up the height difference, turned out she is as tall as Alex and the other is as tall as me. Jesus, Charlie. You have no shame. <laughs> I am I am that petty. As I said, glad to be here. Um, excited to talk about um, the little films, you know, the films that you fit inside the films, inside the films. Inception is a 2010 film directed by Christopher Nolan in which Cobb, a skilled thief who commits corporate espionage by infiltrating the subconscious of his targets, is offered a chance to regain his old life as payment for a task considered to be impossible. Inception! (gasps) The implementation of another person's idea into a target's subconscious. No, I can't do that. What's the Yeah, Yeah, that's more like it. So yeah, just quickly to go round. uh, Inception, good or bad? It's good. I used I, I saw it a couple of years ago as a film student and I really didn't like it. Uh, I thought it was just over-explaining everything. I, I thought it was rubbish. I re-watched it last week for the podcast. After having seen Tenet, I thought, yeah, this yeah, actually Well, this was, is a straightforward <laughs> movie by comparison. This is actually where it's at. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I like it. I like Inception. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Good or bad? Yeah, so I fully went into it with only a passing memory of it. I could not remember the order in which things happened, essentially. And so when I went into the film, I expected it to just be quite straightforward, like not actually dipping into the topic that much, as I find a lot of Nolan films do and just to be a bit of a fun action film and i'll tell you what it was actually a very fun action film (laughs) but there were there were some actual cool things about the topic of what if you could go in someone's dream and then do things 
Uh, I actually did think there were there were some interesting things that were happening there. But as is critical to a lot of Nolan stuff, nowhere near enough interrogation of those cool things. Yeah, I, I think that's my fundamental problem with the film. And I, I think I had the reverse reaction that you two did. I, it sounds like, within reason, you liked it more than you expected to on this rewatch. The last time I watched it was, I think, last year. And I was really impressed by it and reminded myself how much I had enjoyed it. This time round... I still felt it was really good, but the problems in it became more apparent. Some of them are ones you've mentioned, but also... I mean, look, most of my problems mainly revolve around the crazy wife. It's uh, barely a character, and I know the defence might be, oh, well, it's, it's Cobb's projection of her, so she's not a real character, but that sounds like a pretty shit excuse for a one-dimensional female character. I mean, it is quite telling the fact that they fridged her before the film began. But then still found a way to show the fridging mid-film. <laughs> <laughs> um, for those of you that don't know what fridging is, Alex, would you care to elaborate? Killing off female characters very, very soon. I probably don't have quite a technical definition of it, but uh, a bit tacky, bad killing off a female character. Yeah, is it to do with like killing off a female character to serve a male character's arc? It's, it's, arc, often, yeah. mot- it's often a love interest or a family member yeah. that then motivates the yeah. hero. Yeah. Crucially, John Wick is the best subversion I've ever seen of Fridging, because the wife just dies of natural causes before the film, and the dog gets fridged. <laughs> <laughs> But this isn't a John Wick episode. This is an Inception episode. Yeah, and I think it's very telling of Nolan's ability to write women that the only other female character in the film is played by a dude. (laughs) (laughs) I think there is some really cool stuff in this film, but they are nearly all visual. They're nearly all on the surface of the film. The things that are cool in this film aren't anything that is cooler when you think about it's cool as you're experiencing it. Yeah, the one thing that I really got on with is actually, I've completely forgotten their name, but Cobb's wife. Mom. Not about the character. I think the character is, you know, a misogynistic depiction of crazy ex-wife. But the idea of a dream ghost is really compelling. I think that's really cool. I think it's really interesting. The idea that she is always there when Cobb dreams, and even if he's in another dream, she bleeds in. I think that's really interesting that's really cool not nearly interrogated enough like there's so much more that you could do with that you could make a whole film about that but it's such a cool concept i think and it's solved by elliot page shooting his trauma in the face Ah! that's that that's the solution it's not therapy it's not figuring out his issues it's just how do we fix this emotional thing we shoot it yeah classic and that is again it's what's fun about the movie, that you're literalizing inten- usually intangible concepts, but it's also a frustration I have with the movie, that the idea of going into dreams isn't really explained as what it represents. And it doesn't have to be overly didactic, but it, it was, on this rewatch in particular, it was just missing something for me. I still, look, I still really like that movie, and there's a scene where a corridor rotates 360 degrees, and that's rad, and sometimes that can be enough to make a movie very good. Joseph Gordon Levitate. <laughs> that's, that's really good, actually. Yeah. I like that. I, I love, I love um, Joseph Gordon Levitt in this movie. I genuinely think this might be one of his best performances. Just because he is just, like, so... It's just cool. He's not cool. I think yeah. his whole point is, like, he's the nerd. But then but then, why does he get the infinite action sequence? Like, this, one of my biggest problems with the film is every time we go through another layer of the dream, the previous layer of the dream feels like its stakes are so minimal. 
Because what's going to happen? Are they going to lose and then the next part of the dream is going to be invalidated? Clearly not. It's it just it just becomes a action sequence which is a bit of filler. But this is this is probably my biggest problem with Nolan, not Nolan himself, more so Nolan fanboys who act like he revolutionizes film structure and he plays around with time and temporality. It really doesn't. He writes linear structures and then slows them down or reverses them in the case of Memento. It's, it's a linear film like played in reverse. It's just very direct, it's very linear, but it's slowed down and extended in time, and that's the trick. Again, I'm not against it per se, I'm against people treating it as if he's actually doing something out of the box with <laughs> film narratives, which I don't really think he is. I think it's just doing a lot of cool visual stuff and cool editing tricks, but that's, that's about it. The dreams function far more like parallel universes than they do the actual subconscious of the dreamer. It's really easy to forget who is actually dreaming in which layer. I think that technically the first one is Yusuf, then it's Arthur, then it's Eames. But you don't get that much of any of them from from any of their personal dreams. Everything apart from the avalanche just feels like another bland corporate space. It, it shows a real limitation of like, you, you've got a dream, you can do literally anything. You can do what multiverse movies are doing now in terms of like having bright, colourful scapes where everything's completely different and completely uh, upside down of reality. But instead, the decision is, what if we have another office block? Nolan did say what fascinated him about the way he staged the dreams were that they were like parallel universes because that's what shared dreaming essentially is in this movie and I think that it, it's interesting that we're covering it at a time when there are so many fucking multiverse movies. No, I think it's a really good thing to bring up. I think it definitely plays into how it works. Um, it's, it, I think, you know, to a degree that the ideas are quite close together. Of some people will say that, oh, maybe every time you go for a dream uh, you are entering a parallel universe. Do you think that? No, but people do think it. Do people actually <laughs> so think it's, that, it's... or is that just a thing in Doctor Strange and the Multiverse in Madness? Uh, sorry, Charlie, I think you mean a Doctor Madness and the Multiverse of Strange. Yeah, like I said, I, I like the movie, and the more I think about it, it's not that I get frustrated because it's so complex, it's more frustrated at how complex it was pitched at being particularly when it came out. Although I do love the ballsiness of this movie getting the criticism of being super complex and hard to follow, and then he goes, huh, wait till I make Interstellar. And then he makes Tenet <laughs> after that. <laughs> I, like that he, I like that he makes one movie that you can follow in between each totally indecipherable movie. I don't know. I, I don't want to talk about Tenet here, because uh, Alder Ellis too much. I hate that movie. Do you actually hate it? I, I, I loathe it. I think it's fine. Okay, we'll 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 have an episode about that eventually. Because I think we're sort of hitting on some of the reasons why. Oh, it's a it's a limited film. I, w I would like to say like the choreo is really good. Agree. Uh, it's, it's a lot like your uh, what you're saying about the set pieces. Of yeah, when Paris rolls up into a like tube, that's really cool. Um, when the mirrors shatter, that's really cool. But like, I'm the first to be bored by an action sequence, but also. The corridor fight scene is is really good. I think part of the problem with that uh, that you've hit on is the film doesn't really have a villain. The villain is Cobb's subconscious fucking everything up. I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is because no one that they're actually punching and kicking are real people. They're all projections of Fisher's subconscious or the Dreamer's subconscious. It does feel kind of weightless in the way that shooting a stormtrooper kind of does. There's no 
tangible threat that has its own motivation outside of being an extension of the main characters that we're following. I did really enjoy the line, which was essentially, oh, is it dangerous to be killing loads of people in someone's subconscious? And the response is, eh, don't worry about it. It can't, it can't be that bad. <laughs> we which don't is, know. I, th- I think that speaks to... to- one of my frustrations with the film is that he's trying to explain everything. He really is. And there are some things that just he shouldn't have tried to explain in the first place, because who cares? It's a dumb action movie at points. And it, it, and it, it and the more it tries to escape the dumb action movie constraints, the more it becomes pretentious. And I have that problem with Tenet, actually. I think Tenet over-explains everything as well. It's just you can't hear it. <laughs> yeah, it is such a muffled movie. Uh, I think there's a really interesting intersection of sort of like um, your problem with the film. Of, it explains too much. And one of the things that I'm always after in a Nolan movie, which is go further into your concept, do something more with it beyond what I do feel with Inception is that they set up a concept and then they go, whoa, wouldn't it be weird if you could go into a dream? And you're like, oh my god, yeah, I guess it I guess it would be. What would it be like? And then they're like, the most basic possible way that that could be. It would look like an office, but then you could go into another dream. And it's like, that's the first premise. You've just done it again. <laughs> uh, and and I just I just think like when you get to the stuff like the dream ghosts I've mentioned, I think that's really interesting. Uh, I think just like one of my I'm really frustrated that there's no look at what this does to society. The only thing we get is sort of like a little glimpse of, oh, he's had dream training. And I, I love, yeah, I love that bit, but you never get to see someone that is like a more corporate version of Cobb doing yeah. the dream training. The other thing I really like is when they're with Yusuf and he basically shows them his dream opium den, where loads of people are shared dreams. That's a really cool concept. You never, no one ever mentions it again. You spend all of the film inside a dream where the society around the dream is invisible because you can't see it. No, I I think it'd be really cool to have a character inside the dream that is like a permanent I live in the dream of this CEO bodyguard. You know what I mean? That would be really weird. And like to see that character outside of the dream as well of like what does it do to your life? Like these dream, this dream circle people, what does it do to your life to constantly be in a dream for a CEO, you know what I mean? It sounds like that that character you pitched would have been a better like recurring threat than the protagonist's ex-wife. It would have been more interesting <laughs> at least. On that note, what what do you think of because I kinda liked on this second rewatch having the broader narrative of the film parallel the main character's internal journey, as blah as that internal journey is. I shot my trauma. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But <laughs> but 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 I, I kind of I, I thought that again the very first idea was there. Let's make this dream within a dream parallel the character's further and further introspection into his trauma. But the b- very basic idea is there, and it's, it's not, not it's not pushed to no. But like, you know, it's the external milieu of the dream that he's going deeper and deeper into, which is paralleling his internal journey. I think you get some really really nice uh, conversations between Elliot Page's character and Leonardo DiCaprio. Like that's that's a really nice character dynamic that hits that line of it being about an interpersonal thing and it being about Cobb's family life more than it is about what if you could enter a dream. And to a degree, I think that's what Christopher Nolan is really good at, is that mixing science fiction and sort of like high concept 
with interpersonal drama, as you said, and it would be nice to see sort of stop trying the high concept once. Just hit on that interpersonal. I'm really interested to see what his Oppenheimer movie's like, because Dunkirk is like another historical movie based on real events, but it does a high concept historical movie. And I think it's a really interesting film, and I think I like it more than a lot of people in our generation who were just kind of bored of World War II movies, but I genuinely thought it did some cool stuff with it. Once but again, I- another film with a perfectly linear narrative, but it's edited out of order, so... so people have a harder time following it. I think that's a bit <laughs> reductive about it. The thing is that, like, I think it's quite compelling when this is sort of like a tool that's used. However, the way that it is, as you say, generally revered by Nolan fans is the thing that is most egregious, because it's like, no, it's just fine. It's just a nice little tool. It's it's fine for it to be a nice little tool. <laughs> Do, does Chris, Chris himself, Chris yeah, Nolan... Yeah, Chris, you know, I'll make Chris. Yeah, yeah. Does he think... Let's get him on. Let's get... Oh, do you want me to call him? Get, get him. He's in the loo, right? Does he, does he think like that he's doing something clever to the same level that his fans do? Or is he just... Is, is he a bit less pretentious than that? I don't know. I never listened to any of his interviews. I was, okay, I don't think he is a... Even if his films can feel pretentious, from what I understand, he's quite like a straightforward person like his favorite movies aren't real head fuck sci-fi movies his favorite movies are like heat and blade runner and yeah. like they're not i don't think he has illusions about himself in the way that maybe you could argue jonathan nolan does creator of westworld i think it's important because so much of when you discuss a nolan film you have to also kind of talk about his reputation as a filmmaker and also a lot of the discourse around him which i think is largely faded and, you know, deservedly gone to Zack Snyder. (laughs) I'm excited for Oppenheimer, though. I'm literally thinking of anything else to say about Inception. I saw saw a meme about the casting of Oppenheimer that put in next to a bag of assorted crackers. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. It's so telling that, like, for a film that is ostensibly so dense and complex, I'm kind of struggling to find stuff, new stuff to say about Inception. No, I, I really want to get going talking about it in contrast to the other films that we're bringing, because they're so different. I, I, I they think that's where so we'll be different. able to come up with more stuff. Yeah, so. and yeah, I'm really eager to get into that, so shall we just... Jump into the... Onboarding Yourself, so we'll take yeah, a couple of seconds. okay. I'm Mit csinál álmában? Mozog. <gül> Jó napot. Jó napot. Nagyon szépnek látom magát. Én nagyon szépnek látom magát. Ezt nem hiszem el. On Body and Soul is a 2017 Hungarian movie directed by Ildiko Inyedi. Two introverted people find out by pure chance that they share the same dream every night. They are puzzled, incredulous, a bit frightened, as they hesitantly accept the strange coincidence they try to recreate in broad daylight what happens in their dream. That is a rubbish synopsis of <laughs> the movie. Puzzled. None of that happens. Like, they don't try to recreate the dream because the dream is they are both dear. And they go. They never go to a forest well, in real life. No, they they do try to recreate it by having the dream together again. No, but they they try and but and recreate they, it in yeah. broad daylight. That's... Yeah. Wait, 
Did it say recreate in broad daylight? Yeah. Oh, lol, That's bullshit. sorry. I didn't hear that. That's stupid. <laughs> yeah, it's stupid. The other thing is, by pure chance, I think that's very disingenuous. They don't find out by pure chance. They find out by the most contrived <laughs> plot, plot element in almost any Christopher Nolan movie. They, they both work as Slaughterhouse. He is the financial manager, and she is the quality inspector. Mm-hmm. And someone steals mating powder, which I'm still unsure why it is. I think it's just to give... Yeah, I, because yeah. apparently they get... To make bulls horny. They yeah. get outsourced work to breed some of the bulls they're about to slaughter. Mm-hmm. Which isn't illegal. It's like a grey area. See, And so upon the... Police investigation to find out who stole the powder. They get a psychologist. To find out who's the weirdest sex pervert in the slaughterhouse who might be wanting to to, to steal this for themselves. Yeah. And she asks about their dreams and finds these two people have the same. This is really early in the film, so it's not quite a spoiler. (laughs) The conceit that this psychologist comes in, I was surprised by how much I was actually fine with it while it was happening. Like, it was was definitely the thing of, like, um, I, I was fully aware this is ridiculous. Would this ever happen in a million years? But also at the same time, I was like, but also, I would like them to both know they're also having... Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that it's so well acted and so sort of well directed in those moments. And there's so much else going on in those scenes. You literally have the people talking about their dreams while they're waiting to go in. You've got that amazing... There's like the elderly cleaning woman just goes... In my dreams, I like to fuck. <laughs> I love her. <laughs> She's uh, great. Um, he also he also has to concede that the counselor is she's just rubbish. You think so? I, I guess she was specifically looking for someone who, who was sexually. I don't know. I don't know what. I'm they beginning were to regret for. telling you about. That. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a lot going on in those scenes, and like it's really nice to get such a deep insight into the characters. You know, the main two. Um, after you've sort of only had small talk, awkward conversation from them up till that point, it sort of it gives you a lot in a way that doesn't feel too jarring. That really helps you about how you think about them for the rest of the film. I think. Yeah, I, I agree. It forces to very shy and I would say unimpulsive people into a room to confront this very strange thing that's happening to both of them. She is explicitly coded as autistic. I, I think it's a real strength of the film that it it sort of it feels like it shifts after um, maybe about a third of the way through, halfway through, to instead of being, whoa, this is, uh, whoa, whoa, isn't it crazy that they're sharing the same dream? It becomes a really, really touching, tender story about an autistic person dating for the first time in adult life. And like I think that is a, the, that is the selling point of this film, I think. And it's not what I expected at all. And and the dream sharing premise is almost like it's there to get her out of her shell. Exactly. It's like she's being metaphysically guided into finding love. It's like the universe is giving her that push. And, you know, it's also giving him that push because he's quite withdrawn and quite mm-hmm. clearly... I, I read him as depressive. Yeah. So th- there are two people who wouldn't make the step and it's like the universe forcing them to do so. I don't know if the universe also forced that guy to steal the bull powder. That was the universe. The universe did that. It was Francesco. <laughs> Why did you do that for Charlie? That's really oh, wow. You've managed to turn my insult to Francesco <laughs> yeah. into an insult at me. 
Kudos, my friend. Kudos. That's really sweet that you would do that for Charlie. <laughs> I found the specific stuff in the abattoir, the old place where it's set for the majority of the first part of the film, at least, quite vivid, quite like tough to watch, a little bit. Like I get, I get that it was trying to be thematic, but also a little bit unnecessary. But wouldn't it, wouldn't it be wouldn't it be quite irresponsible to set a film inside an abattoir and not show that element of it? Uh, yeah. So uh, I mean, I'm vegetarian. I've previously been vegan. Francesco's also vegetarian. Yeah. Yeah. Seeing it is simultaneously a bit of like, oh fuck, I don't like seeing that. I don't like that potentially that happened for this film, though. You know, I don't doubt. Okay. It okay. So just an important piece of context. From what I understand, it said no animals were harmed for the making of yeah. this film. Right, so they're, they're filming an abattoir. They're yeah. filming an actual abattoir rather than animals who would otherwise not be killed. That definitely puts puts me at ease a, a lot more, you know. So, it, it's more like a doc, it's a very like yeah. realist documentary mm-hmm. style. I would say I think that sequence does go on a bit long if that's if I have a complaint mm-hmm. of that sequence. I, I think it being that visceral is if it's not necessary, I I do think it works. But at the same time, I think it does go on too long, and I totally hear. Yeah, no, I, I do agree. I think it is. It's good because it also uh, you know one of the parts of the film is saying if you're not troubled by what we do here, you can't remain here. There is sort of like a... I love that scene. ...an aspect that this this is not a line of work that you can reasonably be... Act like it's nothing. Yeah, I suppose. Um, I, I, yeah, I think it takes its toll. There's a scene I really like early in the film where Maria strokes one of the cows and everyone's just like, oh, what the fuck are you doing? Isn't that... Sorry, isn't that later in the film when she's, she goes to her psychologist to talk about her fear of touching other people and he suggests that he, she practice on other things herself and she starts, you know, touching everything and exploring the world. And, and the, the previous scene to that sees her push her hand into this potato mash thing. Yeah. It, it's so it's it's basically pure ASMR for me, which is what, <laughs> which is part of what, what what I like about this film and why and why it's such a contrast to Nolan. Cuz Nolan films if you are yourself on the autism spectrum or for any whatever reason sensitive to high sensory stimuli Nolan films are inaccessible to you. I mean, Tenet, I was... I'm not even particularly sensitive, but I was covering my ears throughout the entire thing. It was just an incredibly painful experience. This is a film that I think if you... uh, It's a film about people on the autism spectrum that if you are on the autism spectrum, you can enjoy as a piece of, like, sensory and tactile uh, cinema. Up until a point. Yeah, there should be... uh trigger warning going into this film that there is some depictions of self-harm and uh, suicide. Yeah, well, three um, out of the four films we're discussing today deal with that. Uh, Inception and true. Annihilation too. So I think we should... Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll record that separately yeah, and put that on. Yeah. It's it's weird that um, I only think about it in context of this film because it is so visceral and quite sort of like tough to watch. Whereas in the Inception film... In the Inception film, in Inception, um, <laughs> you know, in that Inception film, one of them in the in the film that features Inception as a concept, which we're all familiar in, which is different life. to Extraction. It's very crucial that you remember. It's different to Extraction, <laughs> which is a different film, uh, but that it, it does feel really like blasé, almost like you know, you're not focusing on 
the trauma for the character that it is happening to. You're not focusing on the visceral body bodily element of it, but you are focusing on Leonardo DiCaprio going, No! And he does it well. He does say yeah. no quite well. But yeah. going back to Inception for a minute, I think a thing that is a problem with that whole emotional arc is just that they don't have any chemistry, the two of them. They're both very talented actors... And these actors, despite playing people who are very emotionally reserved, you do feel a real connection with, both as a viewer, but also between the two of them. And you want them to get together, whereas you want Maul and Cobb to stay far away from each other. <laughs> yeah. I, I think this the relationship in this film is really, really excellently done. Um, it's really... It's, it's really, cute. Um, and I was a bit yeah, a bit skeptical yeah, going into it because he's significantly older than her, but that didn't feel that was he's a not problem. Pre- he's not yeah. predatory. No, not she's. At all. I would she, say she, she has a lot of agency in yeah, the relationship. She comes on to him, so uh, which saying, is yeah. yeah, yeah. She she makes a pass at him first, which is crucial. I, I think what this film, another thing this film does that I don't think Inception does, it does genuinely interrogate what the process of shared dreaming would do to your relationship in the real world. If you had a shared dream, it would affect how you viewed the people you encountered when you're awake, especially if you didn't have as much of a relationship with you. Whereas, again, since the dreaming in Inception is more like a parallel universe, it feels like the same interactions in a different setting. Mm-hmm. No one's a different species. No one is dealing with different laws, except for, you know, fairly straightforward laws of, you know, physics and the rules yeah, the, of the, the game. The, the spatiality in the Inception dreams uh, is very interesting to explore, but the identity of the characters themselves doesn't mutate. Because you're a different person yeah. in your dreams yeah. than you are in real life. But they're all the same mm-hmm. people, and I think that that's a shame, whereas they are literally different people in, in on Body and Soul. They're different animals. And also in Inception, it's explained that the only way a vivid dream can seep into your reality is if you try and create real memories. So it, it's almost like if you're trying to, if you try and bring reality into the dream, then the dream escapes into reality. Otherwise, no issue whatsoever. <laughs> Which is like I find that's a bit that's a bit hard to buy. Yeah, we've got to assume that the circle of a dream opium den. What they're doing is they're going in to dream their exact reality because they've um, you know dreamt exact reality too much but like what would be much more believable is they go in there to have flying dreams you know like they go in there to uh, be different people or they go in there to do things that they would never be allowed to do i think it's very telling in the first dream where tom hardy says to joseph gordon levitt you mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger darling <laughs> and he was uh, like, sorry, can we just say Tom Hardy's performance is the best thing about this? Oh, Tom Hardy! Yeah, I, think, yeah. I genuinely uh, think Tom Hardy is amazing in Inception, but I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a bad Hardy performance outside of This Means War. It's just every line he says is so quotable. Cool <laughs> uh, yeah, he, yeah, he's 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 great and he's so cute. <laughs> I, I, he's a lovely boy. <laughs> so I think what's really telling about that scene is that Joseph Gordon-Levitt is using an assault rifle. And Tom Hardy says, you mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. And he has a slightly bigger rifle. <laughs> well, he yeah, doesn't he turn into a mech. He doesn't he turn into dreamed. a dragon. Like, it, the earth doesn't open up yeah, beneath the people's exactly. feet. It's like, no, you're still... Do you not see the problem? But, but that, that, there is also a point in favour of the film because it is where possible committed to using practical effects. 
especially in 2010, having a big CGI I, fight with I agree. Big rubbish. I agree, and I do appreciate the commitment to practical effects. However, Inception might be the one film where I'd argue you could have done with a bit more CGI. You could have yeah, done with yeah. a bit more yeah. otherworldly stuff. Even if it looked rubbish, that's the one thing where it makes sense. My general, my general rule is CGI should be used to create something that couldn't exist in the real world, that you couldn't make practically. Inception is the perfect movie to do that, and he just doesn't. And, and like, I love practical effects. I'm the first person to complain about an overuse of CGI, but I think Inception might be the one movie that has an underuse of CGI. Inception so often deeply cares about the not-quite-right-look-and-feel of the dream. You know, it's like you can't you can't give away the fact that you're in a dream. As soon as you start to see sort of like one little detail, you'll realise and sort of like peel it away. Whereas it feels like the exact opposite is happening in a body and soul, where because they are dear, what they're doing in the dream is they're they're drinking and they're moving slowly or they're moving, you know, quickly through these trees and it feels really tactile, which is then all about the real world. Because when you get to that, the point where Maria is practicing touch and practicing sensation, she is going about the world, interacting in a very similar way to the two of them do in the dream. Of She is specifically focusing on the lingering moments and the lingering sense of touch and the lingering sensation. And it's really, it's really interesting to see that reflected in the dream as like not thinking of dreams as, oh, they're not quite like reality, they're a bit wrong. But instead of thinking of them as sort of another way of practicing these parts of life. Yeah, and also like of, of escaping one's own body that one might feel trapped into. And so much I, of this, feel, like, you know, the title is about bodies and souls, but, but I didn't really feel much of a soul in the film because everything was so rooted in corporeality, even going back to the abattoir scene. I agree and I disagree. It's because the dream is something outside, so outside of their own experiences that they are both dear, that they are both drinking in this idyllic setting, that it's not surreal, it's not psychedelic in any way, but there isn't a real non-reality to it because of the work that the film does early to really ground us in how mundane their everyday lives are. And because there is this, even if it's not crazy, even if it's not a fantasy, it's just different. Mm -hmm. And I think that because their days seem so samey and so tedious, the very difference of that brings something new to the characters simply by what they dream. And I also think it's crucial that the first thing they do do in their shared dream is that as the air they touch noses, and then there is the extended sequence later on where she is practicing touching other people or like learning how to touch other people. But that happens earlier in the film, in the dream, and it's made possible by her inhabiting a different body. What do you think about the fact that they never mate when they're dear? Uh, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, really... me, me too, me yeah, too. Yeah. Because it, I think that would add... The thing that Francesco mentioned about the age difference, I wonder if that would add a slightly more predatory thing to it. I also think there's something about the way that the um, psychologist talks early on. She is trying to specifically look for sexual elements and she specifically asks, oh, so you were a deer. Did you, you know, did you... Did you mount the other deer? 
Yeah, and it really sort of like highlights how that's not what this is about. That this is about something, this is an emotional connection. This is, you know, something that is um, almost a soul connection to bring it to this soul idea of these are two people who, like, let's go back to this universe idea. The universe knows that they would have a soul connection if they met and, you know, really developed it. And as dear, they're able to explore that. And it's, you know, it's not in that moment a body connection, though the film is very concerned with bodies in every other place. I think that's true. And I don't want to go into the sexual element of it because that would get more into spoiler territory. So I'm going to leave that. But I have some thoughts about that I could talk about off mic. Yeah, the two hour long BDSM scene was a bit unnecessary. Yeah, it's a long movie. I loved it. I loved it. I'll go to bat for it. If that was the whole film, I'd have been happy. No, I look, I like this movie a lot. I hadn't seen it before I suggest it, as is the case with a lot of films, because we have to put together a lot of suggestions for a lot of alternate films that are relevant, and I've not seen all of them, and I've stopped feeling guilty about I mean, suggesting is, films this, I have no idea about. This podcast is as helpful to us with finding films as it is to the audience. Yeah, exactly, which, often, which I think adds yeah. an interesting so, dynamic to yeah. it, because some of them are us genuinely prioritising our favourite films that we know very well. In your case, Cemetery of Splendour is yeah, one of your favourite films. Yeah, it is. <laughs> God knows why. <laughs> I know why. I know. I, me too. God doesn't. Yeah. Um, but other than it is us forcing ourselves to look outside our own comfort zones, and I think that's cute. No, the other thing I want to mention is how replicating the things that you experience in the dream and replicating that in real life, as Maria does when she's learning to experience touch more actively. I, I think that, and we'll get to it later, but I think that does actually draw a nice parallel to... Annihilation and the idea of replicating sensation and action and emotion that you experience in what is essentially another version of yourself. Going back just quickly, I want to link back to Inception, this thing I didn't ask earlier. Would the movie have been better if she hadn't died, if, if Moll hadn't died in her suicide attempt, but was in a coma and was constantly dreaming? Ooh. And so she is a threat, but she is also a projection of a real person rather than the projection of someone else's idea of the person. And there could have been something interesting there where there's doubt whether the male we see is actually the dreaming male or a projection of cops. Yeah, No one should hire well you. Done, for next. A great suggestion. We're very proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Cemetery of Splendor. Let's talk about Cemetery of Splendor trailer. Soldiers with a mysterious sleeping sickness are transferred to a temporary clinic in a former school. The memory-filled space becomes a revelatory ward for housewife and volunteer Janjira as she watches over it, a handsome soldier with no family visitors. 
Jen befriends young medium Kang, who uses her psychic powers to help loved ones communicate with the comatose man. Doctors explore ways, including colored light therapy, to ease the man's troubled dreams. That's as much of a narrative as you're gonna get from this film. <laughs> yeah, let's. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts first. I have a lot to say about this. So, a bit of context. My first interaction with this director was Memoria, mm-hmm. which came out. It was earlier this year. It was what 2021. So yeah, but, uh, but it was released in the oh, UK. Oh yeah, in the earlier, cinema uh, early, early uh, this earlier this year. Sorry for reference, because the the name of the director is very intimidating. Abichaton Virasetaku. He also goes by Joe, J O E, for his Western fans. So you can just call him Joe. Like as a as a mononym or as literally as like his first be, be, name. because Euro American people find his name so hard to pronounce, it just goes by Joe. So that well, officially, a, yeah. So that was a flex from you, showing you could pronounce it. Yeah. I imagine you've had practice. <laughs> I've written my MA dissertation about <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, That'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I, so I'd seen Memoria, and I had liked it, but found it challenging. And I think I had a similar experience with this. I think the difference is that with Tilda Swinton in Memoria, it's an actor I'm very familiar with, some of the time using a language I'm familiar with. So that's something I could sort of latch onto. Mm-hmm. This... It wasn't impenetrable. It wasn't impenetrable, but it was it was slightly harder work, especially because I saw it, you know, at home. Yeah, it's such a sensorial film that it really begs to be seen on the big screen. I've never seen it on the big screen myself. I, you know, because I found it out when it was already released for a yeah. couple of years. So, so I didn't enjoy it. I did like it in sort of like you know, while I was watching it, I was sort of like thinking a lot. And I was like, oh, that's cool. That's interesting. I'm having no fun. Which I th- I think is, you know, is fine. Like, you know, I enjoy doing that. And also, you know, films don't have to just be fun. But I like it when they're a little bit of both, you know what I mean? No, but I, I disagree with that. I think the film is very fun. But it's also, I'm aware that it's because I, I'm going into it knowing what I'm gonna go into and knowing uh, a pitch upon style. First of all, this is a film that is very appropriate, if not encouraged, to fall asleep to. There is a taboo against falling asleep during a film, especially in the cinema, because you feel like you're gonna miss something, you're gonna miss plot elements. This is a film that deliberately tries to lull you to sleep. There's this entire narrative element about the sleeping soldiers who are being given this mood light color therapy to ease their dreams, which Abichapong was inspired by some MIT neurology research about literally manipulating people's dreams and mental health through color therapy through sleep. And what he says about that scene is that he wants to extend that to the audience. So you have these incredible sequences, very slow montage sequence with just a very like relaxing room tone and shots of mundane life in Konkane, which is the northern city, where, uh, Thai city where the film is set, which is just the entire scene is bathed in these slowly shifting colored lights. And imagine watching that on the big screen with your eyes closed, just barely being able to perceive the shifts in light. That, that, that is such a therapeutic scene to me. And secondly, um, the film is very much not taking itself as seriously as you guys are taking it. Uh, <laughs> the, there is so much like gross body humor, and it is humor. Yeah, 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 like when she curious. talks about rubbing jizz on her tits to to to, to make them perky, like that—that's a joke. Yeah, there's yeah. a boner joke that goes on for a whole yeah. scene. <laughs> and I had the same problem when I first saw. So my first film by a pitcher punk was his Palm Door winner, Uncle Boomy, and I went into it thinking, "Oh, there's a meditative." 
film about Buddhism. I need Wait, to engage with it. It's called Uncle Boomy. Uncle Boomy, who can recall his past lives, is the full title. Okay. Um, Uncle Boomy, because that is a character from The Legend of Korra. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. And I went into it thinking, oh, this is a cerebral film. I have to engage with it and try to understand it. Having watched it for a second time after having seen the rest of the director's filmography, it's such a silly film. Like, And what, what I think that Cemetery of Splendor does best is emerges the supernatural and the mundane very early on. There's this scene where she's sitting down with these two young ladies and they're having this like inane conversation about eating fruit or something like that. And all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, by the way, we're goddesses from the local temple who have taken human form. And it's so Thanks casual. for your sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so casual, yeah. Uh, I think it is just maybe the, um, the way that it's paced. It's such a slow, meditative. Like I don't think sleepy is funny. You know what I mean? Like they're they're sort of almost um, not opposing states, but you know it feels like to laugh is more energetic, and this film is like very meditative and very slow. And like I, I still found like the scenes quite funny, but funny in that sort of like, <laughs> yeah. It oh, is low nice. cinema. It is low cinema. Uh, we should mention that. I will say, and this might sound. Like a dumb, reductive way of saying it, but it's kind of it's got no zip, not got any like back and forth. No one in the movie like has necessarily amazing comic timing, so I think yeah. it doesn't play like a comedy, even if there are funny things happening. It's, it's what uh, what you were saying about the the scene with the uh, the two goddesses who are just sort of like um, oh by the way yeah that scene is really funny and like you know the the boner joke is really funny and the way that characters just sort of fall asleep. Is quite yeah. comic as well. I think that's the most overtly comic element. It's just the fact that people nod off randomly. But it's it's also that thing of like a lightly funny film doesn't carry the enjoyment all the way through. Yeah, I, I guess that's also part of my enjoyment of it, and really why I wanted to bring it in contrast to Inception. Because earlier we were talking about On Body and Soul, and how its more subdued elements can make the film very therapeutic and even accessible to people who don't particularly like, you know, bombastic, high sensory stimuli films. Cemetery of Splendor is a therapeutic film. It is very much a film you can put on and let yourself drift away. In our private conversation, Charlie, you mentioned there is a film that is very difficult to engage with for people with ADHD. It's like there's so little going on. <laughs> but, but like to me, I have like a high functioning ADHD, like I'm not really far on the spectrum. But to me, that is precisely my attraction to it. It's just like, it's a film I can put on and then drift away and think about other things. And it's just, it's just there in the background. It's, it's ASMR is what it is. Yeah, I, I think it's a really interesting film. And I think that it's so different to what audiences, particularly Western audiences, are used to. That it's certainly worth enjoying. But it's also something I found with Memoria as well is that it functions more like an installation than it does a cohesive narrative film. You want to know something very fun? Uh, I do! So, uh, fun for me, I don't know about everyone else. But, uh, <laughs> so right after this, Apichapong made this installation at the uh, International Film Festival in Rotterdam called Sleep Cinema Hotel, which he, he created this entire hotel space where he put beanbags on the ground and, uh, and did a lot of projections on the walls. I don't know if there were projections from this film or any of his films, or if they were like original footage, but literally the way you experience the installation is you go into this hotel lay down on the ground and fall asleep. And yeah, I think that's very... It's it's very much how you're meant to, to take some of his feature films as well. Yeah, I think unlike the other two films we've talked about, rather than being a film that is so much about dreams, it is more a film in which the experience of dreaming, or at least dreaminess, 
is built into the form as well as the narrative. Mm -hmm. Which is exactly what Inception doesn't do. No, you're you're right. (laughs) Whether I... I'm kind of on the same boat with Alex. Maybe it's because I saw it very recently and Mm. haven't had time to digest it. I mean, how many times have you seen this film? Uh, Five or six. Yeah. um, (laughs) I feel like we could have taken a break and you could have just talked about it for half an hour. I have one main thing to draw. Essentially, I find the... um, It doesn't feel sort of like part of the point. But I find the cause of the sleeping sickness and the fact that it is all soldiers quite compelling as sort of like a thing that at the beginning is just a fact of the, the world. Sort of what you were saying earlier about how Inception over-explains everything and over-explains. It, it reminds me a lot of a um, game that came out recently called Umarangi Generation, which is um, a game by, a I believe, a Maori game maker. The game is called Red Sky Generation, which is Umarangi. You're a photographer in the city going about while something is happening. You don't quite know from the scenes that you're in what exactly is happening until later on where you're taking photos in sort of like a stage that is very explicit of what it is. And sort of like that feeling of being in a world where something is happening is the exact opposite of Inception, which is like all about it happening all of the time. You know, you can't miss the fact that they're going into a dream to try and, like, you know, put an idea in someone's dream. But it is so not interested in sort of, like, what this world is. Whereas uh, Cemetery of Splendor is all about what is it like to be in this world where there are gods, where there is dreaming, where there is this sort of, like, sleepiness. In the, in this way that Umarangi Generation a lot is as well. And not sort of, like, prioritise that, like, oh, it's, why are they dreaming? We've got to get to the bottom of this mystery, which is really nice. To add a bit of context to, as you said, the reason why they're dreaming, so these soldiers are doing an excavation job. I'm not really sure what the, the work is, but they, they're excavating the ground outside of this hospital. And in doing so, they inadvertently unearth the tombs of these ancient kings who used to live in the, on the territory thousands upon thousands of years ago. And the spirits of these kings are taking over the soldiers' bodies to, to wage war on each other in the dream parallel reality. But you never get into that perspective. <laughs> you, you see yeah. there, there is this incredible sequence near the end of the film where the soldier who befriends the protagonist he is speaking through this uh, medium, this young woman's body. Who is and also she... never interrogated. They're like, oh, you can speak to spirits. Yeah, yeah. She's like, just, oh, yeah. nice. You're just, just a normal person who happens to be able to do it. It's, it's yeah. your job. I also like that there is a little bit of a like, oh, you can do that? Yeah, sure you can. And then like, there, there is sort of like that scepticism. It's not like this isn't a world of magic. This is a world where there is just sort of like this magical element that is as questioned as is generally in our world, which I do really nice, yeah. But in the in this scene that I was talking about, the what, what I find so striking about it is how this medium who is seeing the dream world is describing this dream world to Jen, the protagonist. And during this time, they're walking through this forest, this jungle, and Jen is pointing at, she's pointing at a tree and she's saying, oh, look, that, there was a flood here and you can still see the marking that the water left on the tree. So this this remnant of the past that is very visible and tactile and sensorial and then the medium goes off and she's like oh this is where the throne room used to be and i can see this wonderful palace and she's describing something that we can't see but is still a remnant of a memory of a past 
this film is doing as much with dreams as it's doing with memories, I feel. And it's it's really intertwining all of that, and I find it also fascinating. Which is sort of like subconsciously what Inception is not aware that it is doing in putting everything in corporate grey spaces. Of like, it, it cannot view beyond that, which is sort of like a very safe aesthetic. It is just sort of like, oh, what's, what's the aesthetic of uh, 2010? It's boring and grey. Which, I was there. It's kind of true. It, about 2010. Were we all dreaming in grey? Can't remember that. I was actually dreaming Jar Jar Binks on a trampoline in the desert. Thank you. That's a real dream that I had around, if not a little bit before 2010. I love that Cemetery of Splendor has the same twist as Amityville Horror. I haven't seen Amityville Horror. Well, that it's built on an ancient burial ground. Oh, that, yeah. It's, uh... <laughs> it's like a trope in so many horror movies. But in this one, like, the twist is reacted to, like... Oh yeah, it's built in an ancient burial ground, that's cool. Who isn't? Who isn't? <laughs> who, wait, who isn't built on an ancient burial ground? I just thought that was like, quite a nice thing that they just go, yeah, it's a thing. I do really like the energy, that that, that, that energy in the film of like, oh, this is true. Is it a danger? Uh, yeah, maybe. Say with that Inception line that's like, oh, should we worry about harming people's subconscious? Uh... Or in Austin Powers 2, where he asks for explanations and Basil's like, don't worry about it. And then he turns to the camera and says, and I suggest you don't worry about it either. <laughs> but that's part of what this film is about. It's all about the experience of this dreamscape rather than the physical explanation of it. So yeah, like, did I sell you on it a bit more than when you well, went you into the need, podcast? I mean, we've yeah. already seen it. You were both a bit skeptical about it I'm at the beginning s- of the... skeptical. I'm just considering it. It's not something... Look, I didn't leave it going... Not that I was in the cinema, but I didn't finish the movie. And just go, <laughs> you just Fuck left. Yeah. So you just left your house after watching. Yes, yeah, so I need a walk. <laughs> I need to go to a graveyard. Yeah. I, I I wasn't like pumping my fist, but I don't think that's what the movie wants me mm-hmm. to do. I also want to point out that in the context of what we do, once I'd finished the film, I went back to making notes on the other films. Yeah. Like it wasn't something I could necessarily. And this is maybe a drawback to our approach is. That there isn't as much time for digestion. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. And that's, you know, it's... Well, which is why each of us is tasked with presenting one film and bringing one film to the table. Yeah. So we, we can digest So we like film. at yeah. least one of them. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think you definitely have sold me on it. Uh, or more specifically, you've, you've sold me on sort of like how I will approach his other films. Because I haven't I haven't seen Memoria. Because... Um, you uh, got angry at his distribution I models. got so angry because I literally could not see Memoria. Because the like one day or one week when it was playing, I had work. And it was like, oh, cool. Right, so I guess I'll never see that. I don't know much of that is him and how much of that is Neon, the distribution company, but I, I understand the ethos of it, but I'm also like, okay, a year from now, just, just release a DVD. It's, there are screeners floating around. It's not, like, it's not like the film only exists in cinemas anyway. The, the, so, yeah. the worst thing is if you were in America, you had to wait until it just came to your city. Like it was, there was like one reel and it was oh, going yeah. from theatre to theatre, they would play like one city at a time. It is interesting as a concept and as sort of like a, 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 treating the film as a physical object, which is an interesting thing to be doing. And the, uh, I'm not going to try it, I'm just going to call him Joe, because it's the first time I've tried to pronounce his name. Uh, (laughs) Joe is great, clearly working in that space of like trying to do different things with film, which is very interesting. And like, I I do like that when I will approach another one of his films, I will feel more able to see it as funny 
will see it as um, just sort of like, I don't have to worry as much. But it, that is also like a thing that, in you know, it comes with a specific type of education in different genres of art of like my background is in theatre and specifically visual art I know a lot of people who will go around a gallery a bit overwhelmed by the choice of like there are so many paintings here I don't really know how to focus how to look at them and I've reached a point where I'm like that one's quite funny I don't care about these five I'm going on to the next room (laughs) it's like but that also comes with a specific knowledge of the field and of the the forms of it that you know if you don't come at these films with that there's nothing really necessarily training you in each film of how to view it and a film like this which is very much made up of tableaus it's made up of mostly static long takes you can kind of approach it like a gallery where each take is its own mm. painting and then you move on you move on to the next take and the next one etc etc i think that sort of like gallery context it makes sense that a lot of his other work is bridging into installation it does have that sort of like transient gallery film feeling you wander in you watch a few scenes and you go like i've no idea what's going on but like i'm getting sort of like a sleepy vibe it would work really nicely and it's maybe that what he tried to do with memoria like turning into a gallery installation where you can yeah. only watch when it's showing and that that is cool but it is also frustrating when it, you is, watch it is if you want to watch the movie <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and you know you want to support a piece of work like this because you think that oh it's really nice that something like this is being made I want to go and you know give it my money so that more things like that are made and you're like oh I physically can't <laughs> yeah no no that's 100% a grip should we move on to Annihilation now it's beautiful check this out it's like they're stuck in a continuous mutation anything interesting in there no <laughs> We have to go back. I can't go back. We can camp here tonight. It's destroying everything. It's not destroying. It's making something new. The story follows a group of explorers who enter The Shimmer, a mysterious quarantine zone of mutating plants and animals caused by an alien presence. It is a psychological horror film, though I think it is light on the horror, personally, by Alex Garland, based on the novel by Jeff Vandermeer. Uh, it's one of my favourite films. What are your guys' opinions on it? Love it. Yeah, this was my second watch of it. My first watch, I wasn't won over by it. I rewatched it well as early as yesterday. I, I I can't believe I didn't like it the first time. It really didn't didn't resonate with me. But I think this is essentially it hits the same notes that Nolan Bros think Inception hits. In that it is a big action piece. It is a genre film, but it is very cerebral, and it is actually difficult to get into. And it is actually stimulating in a way that Inception isn't which is part of why Annihilation didn't really resonate with general audiences as much as even Ex Machina, Alex Allen's previous film did. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about Annihilation is that it's had a real renaissance since it came to streaming services. It wasn't super successful, and it didn't make back its budget in the cinema, but it is the fact that over time people have returned to this movie and said, actually, you know what, it's really good, and it's a different take on a very familiar genre. I really 
like that, and it just shows that box office popularity doesn't mean a huge deal. Like, some of the best films had an amazing second life, either in syndicated TV, or on VHS, or now on streaming services. Well, which is why I was so eager to talk about it on this podcast, because, you know, it's a big Netflix production, it's a big budget film, does it not fit our label of what an alternative underdog hidden gem might look like? But to me, it does precisely because of how misunderstood and underappreciated it was upon release. So, um, I'll, I'll also frame it that I didn't realise that that was what I had to suggest. Uh, <laughs> so I, I do have an alternative little suggestion as well that I, I will point people in the way of, which is similar along along different lines as there's also a film called Nine Days that came out a year or two ago, which is about the similar sort of area. But I think one of the reasons that it really stuck out for me is because of that, as you pointed out very rightly, it's mix of action and cerebral which is that it doesn't sacrifice on being that sort of like Inception style oh, action film. There are people with guns going through a space fighting some monsters or, you know, monsters, quote, air quotes. But also there is this sort of like real reflection of what it means to be... Well, it's really wanky to say what it means to be human, but like what it means to that's fundamentally what the human. film's about. Well, what, what it means to be. Because it, it pushes what it is like to to be human and they're like how far can you be human if you're not that that cross between how much uh, are the characters in, in a body and soul how much are they those deers how you know uh, how much are those um, sleeping soldiers how much are they the possessed spirits of you know long dead warrior kings and and there's something we probably didn't mention earlier but the through line between the previous three films we discussed is very much not only dreaming but shared dreaming and collective dreaming and the idea of sometimes a collective subconscious. Annihilation brings it a step further because it's not about dreaming at all, but it is about almost like a collective... It's, it's, I don't know how much we can spoil I would say, right, this. What, yeah. right, what I think we could say is that it is about the consciousness of a space. Yeah. A consciousness of a location and all the matter that exists in that location each having its own existence, but it is reacting mm -hmm. to the environment as an environment. And it very much, it doesn't separate body and soul, if you will, or body and consciousness. Everything is biology, everything is neurology in this film. So when you do see identities merge, they also merge through their bodily existence. I also want to point out, and this might sound, because it, we might make it sound really heady and difficult to break through, there is also a mutant bear, and that <laughs> oh, rules. It's terrifying. No, that it's was, amazing. What if there was a mutant bear with a dictaphone? <laughs> with a biological dictaphone. So, like, the inciting incident of this film, Natalie Portman's husband, Oscar Isaac. Yeah, Natalie Portman's like, character is married to the actor Oscar Isaac. Yeah. Incre incredible chemistry between them in the, the scenes. It's beautiful, their little relationship. Yeah, so the inciting incident is that he is sent away as he's a soldier man. And then, you know, we cut forward in time to him returning. And he's he's not quite the same. He's He appears unwell, he appears ill. And, and also emotionally out, withdrawn. Yes. It, it, it transpires that uh, Natalie Portman is invited to this place, The Shimmer, which is growing ever so slowly. This place where everything distorts. There's, there's a line that explains it 
questionably later on. They use the um, word refract rather than yeah. distort, right? Yeah. It refracts your DNA. Uh, <laughs> ooh, what does that mean? Absolutely nothing. It doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> it's, another, it's another example of, don't worry about it. Yeah. It's this experience of people going into this distortion and how, how it changes them. What does it bring out in each person? And to a degree, that's what's happened to the plant life, the animal life, is everything has distorted in some way. Why I thought of it was because it's sort of a dreamlike way, is how everything is sort of like a, a little bit not right. You know, the flowers are too vibrant. You know, the animals are more hideous and monstrous when they're more hideous and monstrous and more more beautiful and uh, like haunting when they're meant to be beautiful and haunting. There's some just, more deer in this movie. Yeah, so they've got deer. flowers on their horns. So, Charlie, yeah, what's I up? did want to specifically ask you, how did you feel about the fact that the deer in this movie didn't mount each other? I Cause, think cause that you really, you really, you really were a champion of it for a body and soul. So I was. Wondering I wasn't necessarily. What... A, I wasn't a champion of it. I was asking what do you think the significance of it was, and you made it sound like I was a pervert. I you're the one who stole the uh, mating the, the bull spray. Yeah. yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there was, yeah, there wasn't enough deer boning, but I also think you know maybe the film didn't need it. Even if I, th- I think Alex Garland must have a deleted scene of the mutant deers mounting each other. Because how else are they going to make more mutant deers? And I hope that that deleted scene somehow turns up in Men, Alex Garland. <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of Men, uh, what do we think of Oscar Isaac's character? Is he fridged, much like Marion Cotillard in, <laughs> in Inception? Or does he have a bit more of a role in this one? Um, no, his death isn't the motivator for the action because, yes, he's taken out of the picture and, yes, he's damaged by his experience, seemingly, but also he doesn't die and it's more that she wants to continue the work that he did rather than necessarily go in and destroy the thing that hurt her husband. Mm-hmm. I think there is some element there of gender reversal of a classical, you know, dead wife uh, motivating the, the main central soldier protagonist. She's in such male spaces, but they're all inhabited by women. She's an academic. She's a, a soldier. Yeah, she's a soldier. And then when they go into the expedition, it's a only women, it's a women-only expedition. So there is an element of gender reversal there that I think Alex, Alex Garland is playing with. Coming back to what you said earlier about whether the movie interrogates what it is to be human, what it is to exist, I think that another thing that's quite telling is that the central group are all people who not only have difficulties and are experiencing difficult problems, but they are also very specifically human problems. One is dealing with bereavement. One is dealing with infidelity. One is dealing with substance abuse. Mm -hmm. One is dealing with mental health problems. And the other one is dealing with cancer. And some of these things are things that will affect other animals, but the way that it's discussed and the way it's framed, it all feels like stuff that makes up a specifically human experience rather than simply the existing as just a part of nature. Their problems are very societal, at least at least in the way that they talk about it. And I think that stands in juxtaposition of the sort of cohesive nature of the shimmer. And those problems are what drive them towards this, what they call a suicide mission. And I think that that also divides them from the creatures that emerge in the shimmer. I mean, they say early on, we don't know what they want. We don't even know if they do want. They're just a life form. They're like a... Well, yeah. they say it's like it's like a cancer, and I think that that Yeah, is, because it's multiplying and taking over. It, yeah, it taking feels, over the, to yeah. me, it feels more like a fungus. Hmm. 
that it's just sort of something that grows. Because I think the thing about comparing it to bacteria is that bacteria is microscopic. It is something that exists under the surface, whereas these mutations that occur, they are something that is more noticeable. Yeah, the shimmer is like a big mycelium structure. Right? Exactly. Like, and, there, and there is a point, that it's like, you know, at the beginning you think it's a cancer because you think it's killing the environment that it took root in. But it's later just changing on, it. Yeah, later on they make a point that they say maybe it's just changing it to something different. It's not necessarily destroying it. Yeah, and the thing that I think makes the argument that it is constructive rather than destructive is that it is trying to replicate the world that it experienced with varying levels of success. I think the further into the shimmer you go, the more successful the replications become, but also the more impressive the more alien aspects of it are. There is something very harmonious and relaxing about the way this shimmer is operating. It's almost like there is a unconscious creativity to it. Mm -hmm. And I think it really, this film is so brilliant because it not only challenges what it means to be human, but it really challenges the boundary between human identities. And it's something that is, is percolating throughout all the films that we're talking about. I mean, Cemetery of Splendor, you have the female body of the medium being inhabited by the male character of it. I don't know like, why I've been thinking about this so much, but it's, it's so uh, intellectually stimulating to think about like the way that identities can, can, can merge and, and, and transform and be in constant change and shift. I think it's definitely really relevant for this film because um, key part of it is the question of whether Natalie Portman can accept if Oscar Isaac coming out of this place and whether he is changed or not. And, uh, you know, I won't say how that falls, but that, you know, that is an important sort of like through line of you're in a relationship with somebody and they change in a fundamental way. How does uh, a character react to that? And I think that it, it definitely has that aspect of both accepting and rejecting change and sometimes rejecting the change is like a powerful thing for a character and sometimes accepting the change is a powerful thing for the character and sometimes the change is a negative thing for a character and it's a really interesting sort of like multifaceted look at how change can affect people like you know your body is constantly changing and it's constantly mutating with the environment and it's constantly in in dialogue with, with the environment around you so this film you know pushes that to the extreme where like the environment becomes a body and the body becomes the environment as as I understand it, and I can't source this, I don't remember where I read it, it was a long time ago. Oh no, I do remember, I read it on my Twitter where I tweet that every day. Uh, Alex Garland read the book once, all the way through, and then didn't pick it up for reference when writing the script. And it's because he was interested very specifically in getting that change through in writing the screenplay of I've got this this strong sort of like impression of this this text in my head I've just read it I'm going to write and let it morph as I write it the text is allowed to morph and change and grow in the way that it you know the narrative uh, has as well which I yeah is um quite nice a little detailed I tell I viewed it as this space of the shimmer is actually to me at least more dreamlike than any of the explicit dream spaces in Inception. Mm -hmm. Partly because it's, it's a little bit off, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like um, Jupiter Ascending where everything is different and like the difference is built into every part of the world. It's it's our world, but a few angles counterclockwise. And to add yeah, another it's... example, I didn't bring it up earlier, but Apicha Pong says that, in fact, his dreams are more narratively linear than his films. So <laughs> that's another <laughs> counterexample. That's really funny. <laughs> 
But it's, um, uh, I think a lot of people have that experience of like you go into your dream and your kitchen is like your kitchen, but too big or like it's, it's too small or it's got stuff from a different kitchen. My example is it's my kitchen, but with the tiles it used to have. So like everything's the same except the floor is different. Like oh, that, yes. that, that's the difference. I think the word there is uncanny, something that looks familiar but yeah, not I, quite. I think that's, yeah. that's perfect. Like a mutant bear. A, a bit uncanny is a mutant bear. I've got I've got one more comparison to Inception, which is that I think that Annihilation has better sounds. If Agreed. Inception's got like the big droning like Annihilation's like little like. Oh, that's that's sound inception. You know, that's a slowed down version of the Edith Piaf song that plays. Uh, so it's a slowed down version of the instrumental part of that song that plays as a motif on and on again. So are, it's are it's they, all linked. In that film, are they playing Edith Piaf just because of Marion Cotillard? No, it was written in the script, and Christopher Nolan wanted to change it after she was cast, but Hans Zimmer was like. Nah, let me just, let me show you what I've got. Oh, okay. So, any finishing thoughts before we finish up? Uh, it's a great film, go watch it. Uh, or go watch Nine Days, which is also a really good film, um, and also has a sort of, like, dreamlike aspect. Uh, just for a bit of other information, some other dream films that I, I could have brought on, but I didn't, would have been uh, David Lynch's Inland Empire and Richard Linklater's Waking Life. Since you guys are suggesting alternate films, the other film I was thinking of bringing in was John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness, mm. where a crazy writer based on Stephen King, seemingly, writes a book that comes to life and takes over an entire town, and it's kind of similar to The Shimmer. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like a lot, a lot like Annihilation. It is a bit. So, before we wrap up, the question I always ask at the end of an episode is, which of these three alternate picks works best as a double bill with Inception? In terms of relevance, Annihilation is the one that's tonally the closest. The other two would offer more of a contrast to it, more, almost more of a, uh, I want to say, a palate cleanser after the incredible like loudness of Inception. You then go and watch Cemetery of Splendor and actually fall asleep and have nice dreams. I think that if you're interested in experiencing dreaming and following specific characters as they dream, I think On Body and Soul mm -hmm. is the one. But I do think that in terms of blockbuster filmmaking and a, another blockbuster that isn't based on extremely well-known IP, mm -hmm. isn't part of a franchise, and is dealing with interesting questions about consciousness and the way we are interacting with our world or a different version of our world, I think Annihilation is also a really good pick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that Annihilation and Inception are sort of like, it's almost like it's almost too close to a double bill or like it's the sort of thing where like you're, you're doing you're doing a little binge of like, oh, I really want to watch all of these films. But I think it, like, if you put it with um, Cemetery of Splendor, you get sort of like the complete 180 of like different film style, which, which is quite nice to sort of ease you up after the end. I think that's a really good idea. But of Body and Soul is probably going to get that more wide range appeal. So if I was a cinema, I'd probably go for Annihilation or of Body and Soul. But if I was uh, watching my fun film with my friends and everyone else goes home, and then I'm like, God, I need to wind down after that, I'd pick Cemetery of Splendor. Uh, and Cemetery of Splendor also genuinely makes you doubt whether what you're watching is dream or wake. I also have another question, especially for this episode, which is, if you were entering into shared dream space and going through a dream within a dream, what would your 
kick music be? What music would you choose to wake yourself up from a dream heist? I'm really sorry, but I'm going to suggest Jessie J, Ariana Grande, and Nicki Minaj's Bang Bang. <laughs> I think that would be great to wake me up out of a shared dream. No, no, I, I have a better answer. Roy Orbison's In Dreams. Oh, so we're all, if, we're going, <laughs> if we're going thematically... I will wake me up before you go go by wham. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, that was the joke you were building up to. No, it wasn't. Guy. I was really thinking to do turn down for what. <laughs> if, imagine, imagine if that was the actual song in the film. How uh, would it be? be? I want so someone to edit that now. Critically <laughs> on the nose. I, do you think Christopher Nolan likes wham? I don't think Christopher Nolan likes. I don't, we don't know what he likes. We don't even know if he likes. Uh, well, Alex, you've been a swell guest, um, and we hope... Well, shucks. Oh, boy. <laughs> and we hope to have you back on the podcast soon. Uh, in the meantime, if you can't get enough of Alex and you want to see more of him, where can people find you and what are you working on? Um, so if you want to find my general Twitter, where I tweet about mostly bullshit it's not professional but i do occasionally write games or i generally do a few things and they'll be on there probably aside from that i'm mostly working on uh, a game called demonology with siobhan who was on last week uh, you can I find that at demonology <laughs> yeah or he's already mentioned it at demonology rpg on twitter facebook insta or, uh, email us at demonology rpg gmail.com also i'm the technician for the first permanent uh, immersive digital art gallery in the UK. So do come along to see that. That has opened as of recording very recently. So and what's it called? What's it called? <laughs> it's, it's called the Real Store, and it is in Coventry. R E E L. Uh, as for us, you can follow us on BCU Watch Pod on Twitter and at BCU Watch Podcast on Instagram. We will eventually make those two the same. <laughs> but right now, Instagram are fucking uh, us. Yeah. They're sponsors of the show. Oh no! Charlie, what have you done? Oh no, I've ruined everything! So that's why Instagram are no longer uh, putting adverts on the show. Now you know it's all come full circle. But anyway, thank you, Francesco. Oh, thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, as always, Thanks. to our wonderful producer, Jade. And thank you for listening.